Thank you very much for your kind introduction, Florian. I'm uh, very glad and happy to be here with you tonight and talk about um, Okinawa. The topic is uh, language, security, and freedom in Okinawa. I'll discuss uh, issues of language, policy, attitudes, language choices as they relate as choices between security and freedom. Uh, discussing language in these terms allows us to relate it to other languages and also to other topics uh, around the world. <clears throat> the picture uh, that you see here on the first slide is a picture I never thought much about it when I took it. Um, I took it because I actually like that place. Uh, I used to run over there and that was one of the uh, few places where I used to run where there was no buildings and was a bit of open space. Uh, it represents, I was uh, became aware afterwards, Okinawa quite well. Those who have been to Okinawa will immediately notice the clouds, which are typical of Okinawa, very low-flying little clouds that you see all over the Ryukyu Islands and uh, <clears throat> in Japan only there. So looking at the sky, one recognizes immediately that one is in Okinawa. You also recognize, of course, the wired fence, barbed wired fence. Uh, this is Kadena. Uh, airfield, uh, Kadena itself, a town which is made out of more than 70% occupied uh, by the base. So uh, American influence domination on Okinawa is captured on the picture, I believe. And you would also see the palm trees. Now the palm trees are not indigenous uh, to Okinawa, but have been planted there on purpose in order to attract and entertain mainland Japanese uh, tourists. Um, so you see the trees planted there for the Japanese tourists, so the Japanese influence on Okinawa, domination on Okinawa, um, <clears throat> the airfield, and all that remains uh, really Okinawan there is the sky. I became aware of that uh, much later when I looked at these pictures. I will talk about uh, quite a few uh, things today. I need to be um, fast in doing so. I will first talk about Japonic languages. So. Uh, Language in Japan form a language family, and we'll have to talk a bit like that, how they formed, uh, how different they are, <clears throat> uh, what the distinction between them is. Very briefly, language endangerment, obviously, the uh, Ryukyuan languages are all endangered. Uh, we'll talk about how comes they became endangered. Uh, they became endangered, I can already tell you, as a choice between freedom and security. Um, we will look at attitudes today towards language language shift dynamics, that is what happens when people shift from one language to the other or try to reverse that shift. We'll talk about order and disorder because what we are looking at is changing orders and changing ideas of what constitutes order. And uh, this is very um, fundamentally important if you want to discuss choices between uh, freedom and security to understand what the order is and what constitutes this order. We'll talk about uh, problems of language revitalization. Uh, there, not I will talk, but language activists in Okinawa. I will show you videos where they discuss uh, things that I've taken up before. And then at the end, we will discuss how all of that relates to uh, security and freedom uh, and uh, what we might learn uh, from that talk for the future development uh, in Okinawa and uh, in Japan. So let's start with the uh, uh, Japonic languages. Um, the, uh, for a long time we've looked at uh, Japanese as a language isolate, but as a matter of fact we're dealing with a group of languages which are um, interrelated. 
Currently, uh, the uh, Japonic language family uh, consists of three branches, of which uh, the Japanese is the most famous and largest one. Uh, there's a small branch uh, on Hachijo, Hachijo Island, uh, which is today recognized as an endangered language by the uh, UNESCO. We'll talk about that very briefly, how these languages formed. And the Rikyun language themselves, uh, we distinguish today five or six uh, Rikyun languages, <coughs> which are among themselves very distinct, as a matter of fact. These Rikyun languages, uh, we know we usually talk about it like Ryukyu dialect, Ryukyu Hogan, Okinawa Hogan, um, comprise altogether more than 700 local dialects. So there is a great variety within the Ryukyun uh, languages um, themselves. Uh, these are the Ryukyu Islands. The reason why I say Ryukyu instead of Okinawa is that uh, parts of these islands are located in Kagoshima Prefecture. So saying Okinawa Prefecture does not capture that you have Ryukyun Islands in uh, Amami and the uh, islands uh, in between. <clears throat> so they're spread over a fairly uh, large distance, of course. It's approximately the same size as Honshu itself, the Ryukyu Islands. <clears throat> Uh, we have there uh, 180 islands, of which uh, 60 are inhabited, and you have a great number of dialects. And you see um, that uh, the northern Rukyun languages have many more dialects than the southern uh, Rukyun islands, which is uh, probably due to, the, uh, to their age. They probably uh, have been there much longer uh, than in uh, the southern Rukyus. Um, and you'd also see, um, I've calculated how much research has been done on which um, of these dialects, of these languages, you'd find out that in the northern Yukyun languages, that is uh, Okinawan Amami or Okinawan Kunagami, Kunigami Amami, most research has been done. And that the southern Yukyun languages has been somehow neglected uh, in research so far. So we know far less about the southern Yukyun languages and dialects than we know about those um, in the north. This affects, as it does, the way that we do uh, distinguish languages. If you look at the classical source for language in the world, ethnologue, you would find that we have a large number of languages up in the north. And this is simply due to the fact that most research has been done there. And most research has been done there because uh, all five, now we have six universities in Okinawa, are all located on uh, central Okinawa. And so people doing field work just hop on a bus or take a little boat and go to the next island. Uh, going south is more expensive um, and difficult. And this uh, accounts for the fact that we have much more insights uh, up into north. And uh, for that, uh, much finer um, distinctions between these dialects. Now, most people today don't believe that... Uh, these 11 Rukyun languages, that the number is um, accurate. Most people refer today to the UNESCO Atlas of the uh, World's uh, Languages in Dangers. This is, um, uh, you can find that online. Um, <clears throat> you'll see uh, UNESCO uh, distinguishes between six uh, Rukyun languages, all of which are endangered. The darker red the color gets, the more endangered they are. So you see that the languages in southern Rukyus, uh, those of the Yayama archipelago and of Yonaguni, are more severely endangered than those of uh, Miyako, Okinawa, Kunigami, and Amami. You'd also see that up in the north, uh, Ainu language, of course, is uh, uh, very severely endangered today. And you'd find a little dot that's Hachijo, Hachijogo, uh, <clears throat> endangered in pretty much the same way as um, Okinawan today. 
We'll talk about the level of endangerment a bit later. So this is how the UNESCO Atlas uh, would look if you put it on a, a map of the Ryukyu Islands. So you have uh, Japanese in the Tokara Islands up in the, in the north. And then you start with the uh, Ryukyuan cultural and linguistic sphere with um, Amami. Uh, then Kunigami-go. Kunigami-go is something which is rather new. Uh, it was proposed uh, by UNESCO. And it has been proposed because we do not have an interruption of mutual intelligibility between um, Amami and Okinawa, but we have gradual distinctions between them. And so this is, makes it very difficult to identify uh, languages in the dialect continuum that the northern Ryukyuan languages form. <clears throat> Whereas we have very clear cut between Okinawan and Miyako, there is mutual intelligibility is absolutely impossible. And the same holds true for uh, Miyako, Yayama, and Yayama and Yonaguni. So classifying languages in the north is a bit more difficult. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, UNESCO has proposed uh, the idea of uh, kunigami-go. And we'll have to see whether people accept that or not. There's much debate about that. Most linguists, uh, descriptive linguists, reject the idea, um, I should say, today. And so we'll probably be back again to five sooner or later. So how have they formed these languages? We find. Um, uh, conflicting views between them. Usually people would look at Old Japanese and Rikyun and then reconstruct Proto-Japanese. That is a language we don't know uh, that has never been recorded, never written, but we just um, uh, reconstruct that by various uh, uh, linguistic techniques. And this is how we often looked uh, at the Rikyun languages. We do know for more than 50 or 60 years by now that the Ryukyuan languages did not uh, develop from Old Japanese because they have a number of linguistic features which cannot have evolved from Old Japanese. And so people have uh, presupposed for a long time that the split between the Ryukyuan languages and Old Japanese must have occurred before we have the first written evidences of Japanese, that is before the sixth century. Um, to some extent that's right, to some extent that's wrong. And that has been um, very difficult to sort out what has um, really happened uh, with the Ryukyuan language, how they have formed. Um, but if you look just at the meta language, you'd find out that people talk very differently about it. The first modern linguist to have looked at Ryukyuan languages, of course, Basil Hall Chamberlain, he called them sister languages. And he said the relation between Japanese and Ryukyuan languages is similar to that that we have between the Romance languages. Um, <clears throat> The first, uh, basically the father of Japanese dialectology, uh, Tojo Misao, uh, was at great pains to include Ryukyuan languages into the idea of national language, Kokugo. And he could not call them Hogan dialect because they were so distinct from other languages. And so he coined a new category, which he called Dai Hogan. So in uh, Japanese dialectology, it's not that you talk about Okinawa Hogan, even if you are a believer, staunch believer in the idea of national language, you would distinguish between mainland Daihogen and the Rikyun um, Daihogen. Uh, Hattori Shiro, a very important uh, Japanese linguist who have also done uh, much important work on the Rikyun Islands, uh, wasn't sure he called it sometimes Rikyugo, Rikyun language, and sometimes uh, he called it Junsui Hogen, pure. Uh, dialect. And he called it Junsui Hogan because we have today in Okinawa uh, Okinawan Japanese. So we have contact varieties uh, which have formed uh, due to the spread of Japanese and these are called Hogan as well. So in order to distinguish what young people 
who no longer speak, Rukyun languages speak, and what the old folks would speak, he distinguished that between Hogan and Junsui Hogan. And you hear that a lot. Um, most people in Okinawa would, would make that distinction. They'd say, well, we all speak Hogan, but grandmother speaks Junsui Hogan. Um, <clears throat> in an important move, uh, Miyara Shinsho uh, coined the word uh, Ryukyu Shogo, Ryukyuan languages. And this is the term that is now mostly used uh, in uh, Ryukyuan linguistics. And we'll see more of uh, Miyara Shinsho later on. Miyara Shinsho is uh, the pioneer of grammar writing in Ryukyuan languages. Uh, he's written uh, two grammars um, so far, and uh, he's been a, a very big influence on, on, on all researchers um, in this field. Um, so <clears throat> what we do have, how um, this language formed is, and we'll see that in more detail uh, later, that we've Proto-Japanic and that uh, we need to make a distinction between Old Japanic and Kyushu uh, Japonic. That is a language that was later replaced when Old Japanese spread uh, throughout Japan. So um, the Rukyun languages are not a direct uh, descendant of uh, a common proto-languages. They are not a daughter language, but a sister uh, language of uh, Japanese. <clears throat> Let's look first how big the difference is. On the right, you will see this is research, uh, important research done by Hattori Shiro. That is uh, something we call glottochronology. In glottochronology, we uh, look at the 200 most common words that uh, languages have because we believe that these common, language, these common words are not easily replaced. And uh, so there's a set list of 200 words. These are words like mother, father, earth, wind, uh, sea, uh, and so on. <clears throat> and uh, you look uh, at the level of cognates. Cognates are words which have the same origin. And so this is what you'll find across um, the Japonic languages. Uh, Tokyo is 100%. And so if you look at Tokyo dialect and Kyoto dialect, the basic 200 words, the most common words, 92% uh, have the same root. And that goes down, of course, the further you go away uh, from Tokyo. So you'd end up at 85% in Kaoshin, which is quite in impressive, actually. So this is the level that you'd find, for instance, between uh, the Slavic languages. This is mostly 80%. Um, and then you go down, when you enter the Ryukyu 68, Shuri 66, Yayama 63, Miyako 59. So these are uh, um, rates of cognate words which are lower than that between German and, um, um, and English. So very often you'd find that people, when they talk about the distance uh, between the Japanese languages and the Ryukyuan languages, people very often say the distance is larger than that between uh, German and English, and that refers actually to the data by we look at uh, linguistic uh, distance in quite uh, various ways, but this is one which is probably the most easy to understand because these are, these are real figures. And um, for instance, in Austronesian languages, people have actually looked at uh, and tried to define one one should distinguish between a language and a dialect and have proposed 80% as a margin to say when uh, the cognacy rate is below 80% we are very likely dealing with language. So looking at these rates, so the Rikyun languages very easily qualify as uh, languages in their own right. Um, and as a matter of fact, these languages are mutable, intelligible to uh, Japanese. So when you think you've heard Okinawan and you know Okinawan, you've been listening to Okinawan Japanese. That was not Rikyun languages. So what you find on the drama and on television 
and things like that. <clears throat> so um, mutual unintelligibility to the next dialect, remember that dialects always form chains, are interrupted uh, four times between the Japonic languages. They're interrupted between Kyushu Japanese and Amami Okinawa, but they're never interrupted between Amami Okinawa. So if you go down the islands between Amami Okinawa, you can always, you always have mutual intelligibility uh, with the other dialect, all the way until you go to the southern tip of Okinawa uh, main island. But it's interrupted with Miyako, with Yayama, and with Yonaguni. <clears throat> So let's look a bit more at uh, how these um, languages have formed. And this has been something that we've only solved really in the last two years. Um, there was a paradox if we talked about the Ryukyuan language. At one point, we understood that Ryukyuan languages have features which cannot have evolved from old Japanese. So that is the split must have been before the sixth century. At the same time, uh, archaeologists told us, well, we see uh, migration into the Ryukyu Islands in the 11th century. And so the, the linguists and the archaeologists were never on the same page. We just said, well, you know, let the archaeologists say whatever they want. We, we are, you know, certain that it's the 6th century. It cannot be otherwise. And as a matter of fact, it took us a long while to figure out that both are right. So the split was before the 5th century, but they only entered in the 11th century. So how was that possible? Uh, the Japonic languages formed in Kyushu, uh, as we uh, believe today, and then they spread across Japan. <clears throat> uh, from Eastern Japanese, Hachijo language evolved. They moved into Hachijo language, but Eastern Japanese was later replaced, namely by uh, Kinki Japanese, which is the green. And so you have a move in the 11th century into the Ryukyu Islands, and Kyushu, Japonic from which it evolved, was taken over. And this is the scenario today. Uh, we are at risk of losing all these Japonic languages. So that was something that took us quite a while to figure it out, and a French uh, scholar called Thomas Pilar uh, figured that out, and it, 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 we widely believe that this is a very good explanation of what has happened uh, in the Ryukyu Islands. So it's really something else in a dialect. It's very distinct historically, also uh, with regard to linguistic distance. Um, <clears throat> so how comes that the Ryukyuan languages have been considered Japanese dialects for such a long time? And the answer is because people in the Ryukyuan languages write Japanese. So <clears throat> uh, writing, in a way, unifies a language because there's a standardized way to write a language. And uh, we call this in social linguistic terminology Dachsprache or language roof. This is a concept uh, developed by a German sociologist, a sociolinguist called uh, Heinz Kloss. So written language serves as a language roof. It unifies dialects into one language. So when we talk about Japanese, the idea we have is usually written Japanese and on this are these spoken varieties, namely dialect. So. <clears throat> The Rikyuan languages were rarely written. They were rare, uh, written for prayers and poetry sometimes. But uh, uh, people in the Rikyu kingdom used uh, Kambun to write, Chinese to write. And so when the Rikyu islands became Japanese and Japanese was modernized and standardized and written, uh, the written language of Japanese was introduced there. So the language roof was extended over neighboring uh, languages. 
And so you look at Japanese as the language, and then you look at dialect, and then you get the Ryukyus, sister languages, very distinct. But since you write in Japanese, and since they're related to them, you would just say, well, you know, let's call them Daihogen, greater dialects, or something like that. So the same could happen if, uh, you know, you'd write French in Italian. If the French would write in Italian, French would become a dialect according to such a logic, because they'll be roofed by the French language. <clears throat> So, and uh, languages like that, Ryukyuan dialects or Hachijo, uh, are called near dialectalization. So, that is, these are languages which we call language by distance, Abstandsprache, but have become treated as uh, dialects, and writing um, is very important in that process. Um, <clears throat> so, now, um, this descriptive linguists are those who look, you know, at phonology, at grammar, morphology, they'd say, well, it doesn't really matter whether you call them dialect or greater dialect or language or Abstand language, but that's obviously um, wrong, as we will see, um, because, um, particularly because of our uh, modern view uh, on language. So if you have, um, if you look at uh, Japan, um, the pre-modern you would have an idea like that. Japan, you know, uh, not with clear borders, but with frontiers. And the further you get away from the center, you know, the more distinct and different it would get. And that would be it. The further you get from the center, you know, the more barbarian, the more strange it would get. But in modernity, you get clear borders. And then this diversity that you have, for instance, in language is no longer, you know, horizontal, but it's like that. There is good and bad we get a hierarchy in languages. And as a matter of fact, the further you move away from the center, that's where you find endangered languages. And that's pretty much everywhere you go. You'd always find endangered languages at the margins of nation states. And this is part of, you know, that we don't look at diversity like this anymore, but like that. And the more diverse it is, the lower below it is. And what is very different within the Rikyun languages, within the Japonic languages, the Rikyun languages. So the Rikyun languages for that came under huge pressure. They were called dialect, but these dialects were thought to be so strange that they were actively suppressed. <clears throat> so how did Japanese enter? Rikyuns, you must uh, know, did not speak any Japanese until uh, the 1870s. Uh, there was a very small elite in Shuri, the ancient capital, uh, which learned Japanese, but nobody spoke Japanese. So it was spread through schools. <clears throat> um, there was in uh, 1880 a uh, conversation language center uh, uh, established in Okinawa, which was put in charge to develop a bilingual textbook. So Japanese as a second language education starts in Okinawa. <clears throat> and uh, Okinawans learned uh, Japanese as a second language, as a foreign language. And this continued for quite a while. You'd have uh, extra specific textbooks uh, for Okinawans well into the 20th century. And what's very interesting, if you look at these textbooks, is that these textbooks were written in spoken language. So you know that in Japan you can distinguish between spoken language and written language, uh, you know, whether you would have Yamato Kotoba or Kango. And um, we know that, uh, well, uh, Japanese researchers uh, set down and actually counted and classified these words, that these textbooks cons cons consisted almost half of spoken language, whereas those in the mainland consisted only of 8%. Uh, 
of uh, spoken language. So you see, it was not writing and reading that was spread, but the Japanese language which was spread. <clears throat> um, and we also know uh, that Okinawan language spread in Okinawa served as a model to spread language in Taiwan and Korea. It's actually exactly the same model um, that you find there. Uh, at the same time, the local language was suppressed, and one uh, particular infamous example was the so-called Hogen Fuda, that is the dialect tag. The dialect tag was introduced very early in the 20th century and peaked uh, in the 1930s uh, during the uh, Japanese-Chinese uh, War. Um, there was a Hogen Fuda in every classroom, and uh, students who were caught using dialect, Hogen, had to put the Hogen Fuda around his neck in order to be embarrassed and to be ashamed. And that student was then, in turn, put in charge of passing on the Hogen Fuda. So students would themselves monitor and look for somebody who would use something which is not Japanese. <clears throat> so there's quite a lot of research being done um, on the Hogen Fuda. So it matters what you call um, your language um, very clearly. Um, if you look at uh, language ideology, that's just uh, something I've written for contemporary Japan, where I looked actually how ideas were attached to Rikyun languages and Japanese, and you'd find that these ideas are exactly the opposite. So everything which is positive is attached to standard Japanese, and, well, everybody who looks at how we distinguish between things, you always know if you distinguish something as positive, you always need to distinguish it towards something else, which is exactly the opposite. So orientalization, for instance, works like that. And this is the same. So you would have standard Japanese stands for unity, and unity is positive. For modernity, and modernity is uh, positive. Progress and development. And the Rukun languages are exactly the same. And of course, as it's always the case with uh, successful ideologies, people adapt ideologies, even if they're not in their interest. So this is how um, the Rukuns themselves came to think about the language, and many people today still think in these terms. So we get something um, which we call language shift. People started giving up speaking Rikyun languages, uh, and in their place started speaking Japanese instead. People very often uh, talk about this in terms of standardization process, uh, ka. Um, but as a matter of fact, it was not standard Japanese which was spread in Okinawa, but the contact variety, Okinawan Japanese, was spread there. And this is something which is very particular to Okinawa and why you should distinguish it to standardization processes in other parts of um, Japan. So today we have the following situation in that we have, uh, according to generation, uh, different language repertoires. We have uh, the full speakers. Full speakers are those who can talk about any topic in any situation in a given Rikyun language. And these uh, full speakers are today uh, very aged. Uh, we can um, calculate that the last full speakers will probably die out in the 1930s. And we'd all live, if we say, you know, if we're successful, we live 100 years. And that's basically uh, when the last full speakers um, will be dead. And of course, the number is getting uh, smaller day by day. Whenever there's a funeral in Okinawa, there's basically a full speaker um, passing away. And with a full speaker, uh, these languages. Now, what distinguishes a full speaker from a rusty speaker is that a rusty speaker, that's just a social linguistic uh, terminology, a rusty speaker is somebody who cannot express himself in all situations. And these are usually higher domains. And in case of endangered languages, usually polite and formal language. 
So people in Okinawa shifted first to Japanese when they had to speak polite or formal. And this happened in the 1930s. So before the 1930s, you would have people who talk in formal, you know, addressing a large public, speaking politely, but in Okinawan language. And in the 30s, this was replaced, and so people no longer acquired that register. <clears throat> then we get these uh, last rusty speakers. Uh, well, uh, you know, we've got some who, who became rusty speaker rather late. So these will probably lose, you know, 2050, 2055, will lose the last rusty speakers. Um, then we get semi-speakers. Semi-speakers are those who are exposed to language, but they never speak it. So any one of you who grew up in an environment where language was used, which you yourself didn't use, you develop pretty good skills in understanding that language. And you can also say, you know, set phrases, but you're not very good in forming sentences and things like that. So um, semi-speakers are pretty good in analyzing language. That's surprisingly. So they're not able, if you ask them, you know, if you want to elicit language, they're not very good. But if you gave them data to transcribe, they're very helpful uh, in, in helping you uh, analyzing that language. So the last uh, semi-speakers will probably lose in 2085 because uh, we are now looking at uh, non-speakers. And the non-speakers, of course, go on forever. Non-speakers are Japanese monolinguals. Now, the most interesting point here is um, language shift in the family. So you lose languages not word by word or phoneme by phoneme or structure by structure, but according to domains where you speak the language. We talked about formal, polite occasions where it's no longer used. Then at work, it's no longer used. In writing, it's not used. In government, it's not used. In media, it's not used. And once it reaches the family, then the language gets endangered because it's no longer acquired naturally. It's no longer learned. And so you just have to wait until the speakers died out and then the language is extinct. And this is something which happens around the world. So uh, every uh, six weeks, as a matter of fact, uh, a language is lost around the world today. And it's usually this pattern of language shift. So in Okinawa, that's very interesting. Language shift in the family happens in the 1950s. And it happened when the Ryukyu Islands were separated from the Japanese mainland. It happened under American uh, occupation. And it happened at that particular point of time uh, because Rukyuns choose for reunification with Japan. And they did so because they thought that reunifying with Japan would benefit them. They choose for matters of security. They wanted to, to live good and secure life. And in order for that, they gave up freedom, freedom to choose their own languages to stick to their old, to, to transmit their old cultures and values. They tried as hard as they could to become just as Yamato Japanese were. So language choices are value choices. And within these values in the 1950s, Rukyuns choose very differently than I would do today. Um, so they choose, of course, as we know, for uh, base-free Okinawa, for an Okinawa which would be on the same level as uh, Japan, which have the same development, uh, the same standard of life. And people have been disappointed since unification. And I think since unification, you start having reversing language shift activities and reassessment of Okinawan language and culture. So that's the present situation as it is today. If you're a researcher, it's a wonderful time because you have a lot of different uh, repertoires to study, but this will change uh, very quickly, very soon. Uh, languages, of course, do survive, uh, but usually in linguists. Uh, 
So the last speakers are very often people who are paid to know these languages, uh, actors, a few singers, linguists. But other than that, um, the language will very soon face um, extinction. Um, this is the demographics of Okinawan. <clears throat> if you look at it, uh, when I started in 2000, a quarter of the population would speak Okinawan. That was 310 speakers. Now, 310 speakers for linguists is a lot of speakers. Most languages in the world are much smaller than that. 300, yeah, 10,000. If we, if we talk about languages, we usually think you know, of Spanish and English and Chinese and languages like that, but there's uh, 6,000 languages spoken in this world, and the most, most of these languages are much smaller than Okinawan was at that time. And you also see that the percentage of population is dropping. And you see now the dramatic uh, uh, drop of speakers that you have in Okinawan, which is by far the largest Rikyun language. The smallest uh, language is Yonaguni, and there we're down to 1,500 speakers today. So there's very, very few of these speakers, and they're going very, very quickly. So there is awareness um, to do something about them. And uh, if you do something about it, it's very good to see where are these languages still surviving. <clears throat> if we look at the Ryukyus, let's leave away Ainu since we're a bit short of time, uh, you see language shift going through these domains here, uh, starting with government, then school, uh, newspaper, the novel, were very important uh, in uh, language shift in Okinawa. Work starts in 1880. Uh, there's still some people using Ryukyun languages in work today, mostly people doing farming. Uh, in the family, as mentioned before, in 1950. And once the family is affected, then the neighborhood comes next. Because as the number of speakers decreases and you go out in the neighborhood, the chances of meeting a non-speaker get increasingly higher. So in the 1970s, it used to stop to being the unmarked language in the neighborhood. So if you would see somebody in the neighborhood, you'd rather choose um, Japanese. Um, the Rukyun languages uh, survive today in two domains. One is Geino entertaining arts, so minyo, folk songs, acting, uh, things like that. If you want to be you know, a singer or an actor in Okinawa, you'd have to learn uh, the Ryukyun language. And in religion, the religion is the Okinawan religion. But of course, the role of religion is getting gradually weaker due to secularization. And in performing arts, you get uh, an increasing number of uh, artists mixing languages. So these uh, domains are by no way sure. And if you want to start maintaining or revitalizing the languages, you actually have to start there and try to strengthen them or maintain them here. So what are the attitudes um, of Okinawans today towards their languages? When they shifted, they had very negative attitudes. Uh, they would not have shifted otherwise. But you see that uh, people in Okinawa today regret these language choices. Their language attitudes towards uh, Rukyun languages have drastically changed. And this is shown again and again. Uh, Ryukyu Shimpo, for instance, the local newspaper, uh, does service every two years. And they ask, do you feel uh, affection, uh, aichaku, towards the local languages? And you would see throughout all age cohorts that people have very strong affection um, towards uh, these languages. Of course, the older one higher than the younger ones who would know less about it. And just yesterday, I got some uh, data from Okinawa Prefecture. It was just published in um, December. Okinawa Prefecture is doing quite a lot now trying to maintain um, these languages. And they asked, you know, do you feel affection, so, uh, 
familiarity towards the local languages. And there you see, for instance, now a very dramatic drop between those uh, in their teens, since they're no longer familiar uh, with this language and know very little about it. <clears throat> so these are, you know, for people in Okinawa, uh, alarming figures. At one point they see, well, there's a faction between the older, but it will not stay by itself forever. I myself has, have asked, uh, would you like to have local language in school? Because once the language is no longer taught in the family, the only way to bring it back is, is through school, because the childbearing generation no longer speaks the Rikyun language. So even if you would say, well, I think my parents did the wrong decision in talking Japanese to me, I will raise my children in Okinawan or in Miyako language, it's no longer possible because he didn't learn it. So school is very important. We know school is not sufficient, but very important to revitalize languages. So I asked, <clears throat> uh, do you think that uh, language should be introduced as a school subject? And you see very high approval rates. What is very interesting is Miyako, where the approval rate is lowest, but language vitality in Miyako is by far the highest among all Rikyun languages. So as language vital vitality drops there, you can assume that it will rise. <clears throat> so quite a bit of support. And of course, policymakers should be interested in something like that. If there's big approval for something, one need to ask how comes you know, there's no policy, how comes there's no school subject um, to introduce uh, this uh, topic. <clears throat> now, to understand this, I developed something which I call language shift dynamic. That is, I, I uh, looked for a model where I could explain all language shifts throughout history, throughout the world, and saying what is at stake at every uh, language shift. And I did this by looking at what I call the language endangerment field, which is made up of two crossed uh, axes. One which is community and the other is society, so close-knit uh, communities where people know each other to large anonymous societies in which you and I uh, live today. And then equality and inequality um, between its members. And if you look at that, you'd find, for instance, that hunter-gatherers are very equal, very egalitarian, because there's no means to be unequal. Um, in such society, and they're also very small. So hunter-gatherers are usually no, no larger than 300 people, and so they have their own language. But if you start um, uh, with the development of uh, agriculture, you get the first language shift in history. So we lost thousands of languages, unrecorded, when uh, we started engaging in uh, agriculture uh, 10,000 years ago. Um, so that is then a, a shift towards inequality. These societies, uh, there was a lot of inequality, and then just the biggest, the strongest uh, dominated others, and that language survived. So people were forcefully assimilated, driven into the periphery, or killed. This is how we lost all these uh, languages. And that language shift is coming to an end now. We are now seeing the last hunter-gatherer languages being highly endangered. There's not so many... Uh, left over anymore, and they're encroached again by uh, uh, languages of uh, people practicing agriculture. This, for instance, what you see in language shift in Africa, where the Khoisan languages are being replaced by Bantu uh, languages. Then you have dynastic realms, like, for instance, um, Tokugawa Bakfu or Ryukyu Okoku. And these are actually, you'd have language shift there as well, and there's, of course, inequality and the the uh, polity gets larger, but language is not so much affected in that transition from this new type 
um, of society because people are unequal. So you can speak unequal. You can speak whatever you want. It doesn't affect them. It's a divine order. It's a set order. It's a hierarchic order. Language is not employed for any political purpose. We have the second wave of language loss we experience today, and that is the language loss uh, that we're seeing in the transition from uh, dynastic realms to modern states. And modern states are um, imagined as homogeneous, as egalitarian, uh, sharing one language, one culture, but as a matter of fact, they're not. They're multilingual and multicultural. And since now people are egalitarian, there's social mobility, but social mobility is linked with one language, with one culture, with a set, specific set of languages, the others become worthless and people drop them and abandon them. So this is what's happening in uh, modern states today. Uh, a large number of endangered languages are uh, endangered in places like you know, Germany, Italy, Japan, uh, China, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so if you want to revitalize the language, you have two options, we understand from this model, and this is why I developed this model. You can either try to build a more egalitarian society which uh, you take into account that in the nation state there are minorities and other languages and other cultures, or if the majority does not grant this, then your choice is to retreat and to put more distance between the majority connecting them. This is the two ways that you have. And <clears throat> both ways actually uh, imply choices for more freedom. Freedom to choose your language, freedom to choose your identity. <clears throat> so... That sounds all pretty good, and you see, well, there's minorities trying to emancipate themselves, trying to redistribute power between majority and minority, wanting to be more equal, and if this is not granted, then, well, we don't want to be part of that. This is what we're seeing around the world in many modern uh, nation states. The question is, how comes does language come in here? What does language have to do with it? Well, we have to know that language is good for quite a few things. It's not just passing on, you know, one idea from speaker A to speaker B. Language can do a quite a, a, a whole lot of things, and we usually distinguish between five uh, things that language is good for. Of course, and this is very mundane, language is good for linguists, so we know <laughs> we learn a lot about languages through looking at different languages, and we understand what language actually is and what it does. So this information you could never get outside any other language but um, Rukyun languages. You see, for instance, I choose this among many other samples of uh, Rukyun data, that uh, you still have a distinction between gentry and commoners in Rukyun language because they were never modernized. So the Rukyun languages they stand, they reflect a society, a feudal society. And <clears throat> so that is something that you have to deal with if you revitalize language, but that's not so uh, difficult. Another thing that languages are good for, languages are uh, carriers of knowledge. So a word is not just like an arbitrary sign referring to something, but it classifies in, uh, it encodes knowledge that we have. So this, for instance, you recognize that that's typical of Okinawa, little clouds that rains partially. So there's a word in Okinawan for that kind of rain. We call it katabui. So Okinawans, since they have a lot of these phenomena, they choose a word for that. And Okinawans, the Okinawans made the Okinawan languages, and they made it according to their values, to their environment, to their views. And so if you lose a language, like Okinawan, you lose a lot of you know, useful little knowledge uh, which is encoded in that language. So katabui obviously is a very um, helpful word in Okinawa since you have that basically every day. You stand there, it rains on your side of the street but not on the other side of the street. And of course you can express that in Japanese 
it just takes longer. Language is good for aesthetic effects. We all enjoy uh, language diversity. When we find out that a person speaks a language we don't know, we often ask, oh, could you just say a few words? And say, oh, that's how Thai sounds. Or that's how Chinese sounds. Or that's how Portuguese sounds. We like diversity. We enjoy diversity. And therefore, it's not surprising to see that we find it in arts all the time. So uh, Okinawa music and the guy on the right is the most famous, uh, uh, Noborikawa uh, Seijin. He is the uh, Eddie Van Halen of the Sanchin, the fastest and technical most versed Sanchin player. And you'd also find it's a, a journal called Uruma, and you might know that Uruma is the poetic word for Okinawa. But if you know the language, then you also know that Uruma uh, means island made out of coral reefs. So you see there's knowledge uh, in language that is lost. So language is good for something. Small languages are even good for economy, because if it weren't good for economy, you would find them on products. So sampincha and jasmine tea in katakana next to it means that people producing that, and that's Coca-Cola, I think, or Pokka, thought that sampincha would sell better than jasmine tea. So it has an economic purpose. It has a value. And you'd also find it paikaji. Paikaji is southern wind, uh, one of the uh, chains that you find of izakaya in Okinawa. So people only write that on signs because they think it has an economic value. If you put on an Okinawan name, it would sell. <clears throat> but language, most more cru uh, crucially, is also good for uh, gaining more autonomy and to making your own choices. And that's where we come, for instance, between language revitalization and see the connection towards base issues and things like that. Here we have uh, the uh, Futema airfield, and you have people demonstrating, forming a link, and in so doing, uh, symbolically reclaiming uh, Futema uh, Airbase, and this is what one of the uh, most well-known scholars in the field uh, writes about this. The argument of minority groups for the retention of their ethnic, cultural, linguistic identities are most often not characterized by retreat into traditionalism or cultural essentialism, but rather by more autonomous construction of group identity and political, political deliberation. So language can be employed to say we are distinct, we are different, we are being dominated by you. We want to make our own decisions. And if the idea of autonomy is absent, very often uh, language revitalization movements are not successful. And as a matter of fact, because language can do that job for you is the reason why most states are very um, reluctant to grant uh, minorities language status. Because that then puts them in a situation where they could ask for new rights where they can redistribute uh, the rights as they are uh, distributed right now between majority and minority. <clears throat> so, but then people would say, oh, come on, you know, nation state, you know, everyone is the same. You know, everyone has the same chances, everybody has the same rights, everybody has the same chances. Well, this is obviously not the case, because if you treat people the same, and they're not the same, you produce inequality. That is something which is, you know, very, uh, probably very easy to understand, but I always find in my classes that's the first thing I try to teach my students. Because the idea, if you treat everyone the same, that that is fair and, 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 and egalitarian is very strongly rooted. But it's not. If you're different and you treat people the same, you produce inequality. And that is captured, I think, 
uh, very nicely um, in this uh, little uh, picture here. So if you look at people who are different, well, they, they need different policies. They need different, you know, different rules. They need to be governed probably uh, differently. And this is why if you move to what I call the margin, where people are different, you can actually learn quite a lot. I think the perspective of a margin is um, very helpful in studying, for instance, Japan. So if you study in the Ryukyu Islands, you not only learn something about Okinawa, I think you learn a lot about Japan. It's a very helpful uh, <clears throat> perspective. And uh, Jane Hill, a very famous linguistic anthropologist, has rightly written, uh, the reason why history speeds up at the margin is that discontent is located there because the margin was never cons considered to be a constitute element uh, of what uh, was to be given order under modernity. So you have a modern order and the margin has never been considered. And people are today you know, very often aware of that. And if you want to see you know, where are the contradictions, where are people discontent, where are people not happy with uh, things as they are. Where are people pushing for change? The margin is a very good place to look for. <clears throat> um, and people are giving voice to that. This is uh, uh, probably the youngest full speaker of Okinawa. We'll see a bit more of that. That's uh, Fija Byron, uh, teaching in Duisburg, actually, an uh, Okinawan language course, uh, asking why is Okinawan lacking support at Japanese is. So, um, and him and others are pushing towards the recognition of language and in so doing changing Japan from a country which sees itself as mono-ethnic, monolingual, uh, monocultural towards a Japan that is diverse. So ever since I came to the Ryukyu Islands I've seen quite a bit of change and these are just like some of the developments so that you could actually read it um, yourself. So in 2000 Okinawa Hogen Kyogikai, so Society to Spread Okinawan Dialects uh, was uh, constituted, it changed into Okinawa, into Uchinaguchi Kyogikai in 2005. They changed their name, got rid of Hogen dialect and replaced it by language. Um, you'd have Shimakutoba no Hi or Shimakutoba no Nu Hi, uh, however you want to pronounce it, which is uh, every year on September 18th. Uh, started very modestly. These days, uh, Shimakutoba no Hi is a big event in all Okinawa and all newspapers, all televisions, all schools, uh, everyone engages in Shima Kutuba no Hi. Uh, this was the first post on the first uh, event, which I happened to be part of. It was very modest back then. It has uh, grown spectacularly uh, in the past 10 years. Uh, you have uh, um, committees uh, established like the Shima Kutuba Kento Inkai, uh, which has been uh, abolished again, so they're trying to uh, create uh, orthographies and develop textbooks uh, for uh, writing and teaching Okinawan. The UNESCO Atlas in 2009 was a key event uh, that UNESCO recognized UNESCO, uh, Rukyun languages as languages in their own rights, and this is driving Okinawa Prefecture today. They have tripled their um, their budget for local languages in the last year, and they're very much aware that they need to do something uh, in order to make sure the languages uh, will be maintained. Um, you have now the Shima Kutuba Fukyu Suishin Inkai, which replaced the Kento Inkai. Uh, and uh, since 2012, you have the first Okinawan language nest, that is uh, parents trying to have their children learn Okinawan. 
we'll see the main person behind that um, <clears throat> in um, a video. One thing which is important to look for, uh, <clears throat> for what is discussed um, is to understand that if you imagine the nation state to be homogeneous, equal, and egalitarian on that basis, you create um, a mechanism in which those who differ will always be treated alike. They will either be assimilated or they will be expulsed, they will be driven away. This is what's, what's happening. And as I googled sameness, I found this the first picture and I thought, why not? You know, <clears throat> all other pictures were a bit cheesy and, you know, um, uh, let's enjoy diversity. I thought this is very good. Indeed, you know, these people, these women on these uh, covers all look the same. And uh, so if you don't look like that, you will not make it onto the cover. Or if you want to make it on the cover, you will be, you know, expulsed. If you want to make it on the cover, well, you have to lose seven kilos. You have to get slim and beautiful, and then you can be part of that. And that is how we look at minorities around the world. If we look at, you know, the nation being homogeneous and same, and uh, at the same time egalitarian, well, you either assimilate or you go away. And <clears throat> Okinawa, everybody who's had even a brief look at Okinawan history will understand that Okinawan modern history is a history of assimilation and expulsion. Expulsion is not just like people driven away, but not considering Okinawa when, for instance, the Battle of Okinawa was being considered to say, well, let's have that in Okinawa. When the bases were considered, well, let's have them in Okinawa. When replacement for Futema was considered, well, let's have that in Okinawa. So people in Okinawa are very much aware that they are being singled out. And at the same time, they've tried to assimilate very hard. Okinawans. And so what we see now is that there's a growing awareness in Okinawa that assimilation was not successful. So now stress diversity, as I mean, is coming in. I was actually uh, talking to Mark Selden a couple of days ago. He asked me, oh, Patrick, can't you write something about Okinawa since everybody talks about Okinawa? And I said, I'd love to do. Uh, I can write something in summer. And I said, it's really going well. It's spectacular. And he said, oh, is that? Because everything else is so bad. And I said, yeah. It's so good because it's so bad. Language can do something to improve situation in, in Okinawa. So it's not uh, very much surprising. So you have a construction of what passes as normality. Uh, then sameness is seen as normality. If you're not normal, then, well, obviously uniformity is the solution. Becoming the same is uh, the solution. There are things which are out of place. People who have never been considered. The Ryukyuns are out of place. Their languages, you know, their traditions, their history has not been considered when you made up modern Japanese identity and language. And at the same time, also, things that move. If you put on an order, things that move automatically create um, disorder. And this is what links, for instance, uh, migrant minorities with indigenous minorities. <clears throat> so in order to understand the disorder, we have to understand the order. It's very easy, there's no disorder without the order. And this order is defined by order. So if you put, you know, if you have a system where to place the things, then the thing is in disorder if it's not in its place, right? And if you did not find a place for the things, they constitute disorder, right? If you never thought about recunes, there'll be disorder. And if you, if you did not, and things that move, think of your apartment, things which are moving around, you know, they're not in their place. They constitute disorder. 
So in modernity, these are the ideas of Sigmund Baum, and of course you might have recognized them. In modernity, people try to impose a new order. That's what modernity is. Modernity is an attitude. Modernity is, is an attempt to put order into things which are seen after enlightenment as unruly, as things that could have been improved upon. And uh, what was very strong, which became the order, was universality, homogeneity, monotony, and clarity. These are the things that modernists' attitudes like. This is what is order. If things are in disorder, this is what we try to enforce. And Sigmund Baumann would say, well, what we're seeing now today in late uh, modernity is a shift from that, in that we value more often, or tend to give more value to the opposite, pluralism, variety, contingency, uh, ambivalence. So this in modernity gives security. If things are in their place, if things are order, if everybody speaks the same language, everybody's monotone, it's all around, we think that's the way it is, we feel good about it. So we want to have rules which impose that. At the same time, we understand that this uh, restricts uh, the freedom of people who are different. So these are the choice for freedom. If you go towards that direction, you want new choices, you want freedom. Um, now, um, if we look at languages, so this would be the situation for Rukyuns. So Rukyuns who choose to speak Japanese, to become as everybody else, um, enjoy the safety, joy, prestige of being Japanese and not being, having their identity being questions. What, for instance, the Americans did when they occupied the Ryukyu Islands. They said, these people are Ryukyuns. They're not Japanese. And hence, every institution they founded carries the name Ryukyu, Ryukyu Ginko, Ryukyu Daigaku, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> At the same time, becoming Japanese and striving for unification during the Fukiundo, the reversion movement, entailed, as we have seen in the 50s, giving up the language giving up everything which was not, uh, which did not, uh, which was not in line with uh, Yamato history, Yamato culture, Yamato values. So you had to compromise with freedom. And this is what Sigmund Baumann writes. Uh, security and freedom, you can never balance. You buy security by giving up freedom. And you only gain more freedom by giving up security. <clears throat> so. Uh, the postmodern choices, according to Baumann, would be, you know, to enjoy a different language identity, a different values, etc. This is what people in Okinawa are doing. But they're very much constrained because this um, compromises with security. For instance, it gives rise to the question, well, are the Yukyuns actually Japanese if they speak different languages, if they have different history, different cultures, different identities? If they are not Japanese, because we think that Japanese are homogeneous and speak the same language have ever done so, why should one have solidarity with them? What bounds us with the Rikunes? So these are issues that you have to deal with. <clears throat> so the idea, uh, I will not quote it that into a length because I want to show you some videos. Uh, Sigmund Baumann, of course, got from uh, Sigmund Freud in his uh, book, uh, Das Unbehagen in der Kultur, Discontent in Culture, where uh, Sigmund Freud famously wrote that civilized man had given his freedom of you know, enjoying his uh, sexual instincts and desires, and in turn received more security, you know, safer life, longer life. <clears throat> and he said, this makes man neurotic because he cannot, he will never be happy. If he's secure, he misses freedom. If he's free, he misses the security. And this is something that Sigmund Baumann um, applied. I looked for a picture of that and found uh, this one of uh, Obamacare. Uh, anyone who's been listening understands that this is unfair criticism. So Obama either compromises with security 
or with freedom, but not with both. Okay, you cannot have both at the same time. You cannot violence uh, against both at the same time. Now, uh, look at how language activists, so this is the situation in which they're trying to revitalize the languages. And um, this is uh, three quite well-known person uh, in Okinawa in the middle. You have Shinako Oyakawa. She's a graduate student at uh, Ryukyu University. And she's the founder of the Language Nest. And she has a little son, uh, Mario, who's two years old. And she's teaching him as good as she can Okinawan. On the left is uh, Fija Byron, probably the most famous uh, language activist in Okinawa. Uh, Byron is 44 years old. Uh, he's the youngest fully fluent speaker, so he speaks formal registers polite language, Keigo, uh, in uh, Uchinaguchi. He's a radio DJ, a musician, a journalist, uh, also a language teacher at uh, uh, Christian University in Okinawa. Uh, and on the right you have Miyara Shincho, whom I introduced before. Uh, he's uh, a person who's written two uh, grammars. He's also the president of the Rikun Heritage Language Society. Um, he's the co-founder of the Okinawan Uchinaguchi uh, Kyogikai, so very important people. And they talk about language revitalization in my office in Ryukyu University then. Uh, maybe you will note that uh, Byron has Western features. Uh, he is born to an American father and an Okinawan mother, and um, he has never met his father. He doesn't know about his identity of his father, and he's experienced, um, is experiencing uh, discrimination due to his looks in Okinawa every day and in order to counter that he decided that he would learn Okinawan and he would speak better Okinawan than anybody else and that would be his passport that he would pass now as an Okinawan. <clears throat> so let's look what they say. I asked them the first question that Shinako asked is uh, what is in the way of establishing Okinawan as a, a school subject? I apologize the camera at the start is a bit bad then it gets better. Uh, please look at your handout in case you need, uh, you know, a translation. They speak quite fast at times. まあ、もうそのまま意識が結構意識が大切じゃないかなと今のところ。で、世界中のこの言語学でも最近はえあの北フランスはだ、これと語っていうのが学校教育で教えるようになってるみたいだから、そういう風に当たり前に家内でもやるようになって
琉球語の付見というか、うん、もう完全にこの本当はそうでないはずですけどもこのただみんなが考え言われているようにその廃藩置県があったというこのあくまでも政治的なところで同じこのこと言語までもついていって、うん、この日本語の下に来てしまったという現実があるとう、うん、もう本来はこの奈良平安この江戸こ,うこの流れの中で内縄口とこの日本語のこの接点はその特になかったわけですよねいきなりこう政治的にこの廃藩置県ということで一つの県になった、うん、と時に一緒に言語までもついていって下に日本語の下になる日本政府の下に来たから県の日本の中の一,一県になったということとこの内縄口までも一緒にこの日本語の中の下に来てしたというようなふうに捉えてますので。So here, see, uh, um, Professor Miyara basically says what I did before, like that. He says, when the Ryukyu Islands become part of the Japanese state, this happened, and the Ryukyu Islands were placed below. And this is how people understand it. And what he says at the end, I've been talking about it, but the idea doesn't stick. People don't understand. I've often witnessed it, him explaining, I mean, he talks in great detail about the Ryukyu language, that these are not dialects. And afterwards, people would address him, Ano ne, sensei, Ano hugen desu ne. Uh, and he would just go, oh my God, I've talking, you know, for, for, for 90 minutes and you didn't even get it. So that's something, right? The, the, the way you look at it is obviously linked to power. And he addressed that. He says that's very difficult to change. As a matter of fact, it's so difficult to change that at times you get rather absurd results. Look, for instance, at this here, what they discuss. そういうとにかくこういう考えでみんなと同じように考えようとするみんなとちゃ東京を見たりこの大阪を見たりしてと,と,と,とにかく都会を見てあっちとこのまだまだ劣ってるのに何を知っているかっていうみたいなそういう考え方があるんですよね。うん So that is very interesting that he says he would like, and he's been you know, talking to um, uh, Okinawa Prefecture for many years, that he says, we want local language education in school. And people say, how can you want local language education in school if you, are not, if you don't speak as well as Tokyo yet? So you see the, the idea of assimilation of people who are different becoming first same. And once you've achieved that, difference is for the elite. It's not for you guys. You first become the same. And that is something very, very difficult. To overcome. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, social linguistics, we know that very well. There's the distinction between uh, folk bilingualism and elite bilingualism. We look at, you know, Turkish children as well, not as, you know, bilingual and great, you know, uh, people with a, 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 a very admirable proficiency, but as a problem. And that's the same that we look at it. If you want to be bilingual, well, bilingual is for smart people, it's for successful people. And you, Okinawa, Okinawa ranks lowest in academic achievements. Uh, in Japan, well, you first catch up with Tokyo and with uh, Kyoto, and then we'll talk about it. So that's um, very absurd. And as a matter of fact, we find that very often that language minorities place very low in academic achievement, and those specialized on minority education understand this as cultural resistance. They're resisting the dominating language and culture because they're experiencing 
uh, discrimination and um, they are aware of that. So if you want to bring up, you know, academic achievements, you actually have to bring in the language and not suppress it. So <clears throat> still at the same time, there are ways that they, they are different and uh, they have to somehow talk about this. うちな我々から見たらこの日本語はやっぱり全く違うでしょ。で、あ、本当の人はヤマトンチでしょ。我々は日本人だけどヤマトンチじゃないね。うちなんちゅうですからね。まあね。ですからこの言葉の中では完全
部族とかっていうのを超えてしまってもう国家っていう枠組みになってしまってそれは国家ではまた民族っていうのも関わってきて国家民族言語っていうふうなこのもう3つが1つになってしまっているわけ日本,いや日本っていうかもう地球の中で、まあ、まあそううでだからその国家とか、うんえー、国家言語なんだっけもう民族この国家と民族をなくしてこの言語だけを僕は一応やろうとも思っているでこの国家と民族これを出してくると独立運動になってくるんです今度 So that is what he says. That he says, oh, it's a problem in Japan to talk about difference and, you know, being a different ethnicity, having a different identity. Why don't we just focus only on language? The bad thing is that this doesn't work. This doesn't work and has never worked anywhere. Because、uh, language is about being different and being proud of difference and having advantage of being different. So if you take all of that away and only talk about language, you'll get, you know, professors interested in that and、uh, all kinds of various people. Byron himself is profiting a lot from being Okinawan language speaker. So if you take that away, it will never work. So <clears throat> it doesn't work and、uh, they're somehow trapped、uh, in this situation. But at the same time, They know that they're right. So there you see it.、Uh, Okinawans are permanently accommodating to mainland Japanese. And Byron says, What if we all of a sudden would stop? If we would say, Well, you know, we speak Uchinaguchi here. You know, we don't understand, get over a translator. And that would prove that, you know, the, the, the dominant idea about Japan is all wrong. And they're very much aware of it. And they just laugh about the idea of actually doing that. You know, stop accommodating people speaking Okinawan, speaking Rukyun language, and then say, well, and how come s you want to decide what is happening here? So he says, that would be it, somebody doing like that.、Um, to conclude, it's, it's a bit late. So the Okinawan problem,、uh, it is、uh, in, in red,、uh, military infrastructure, is、um, closely related to that of language.、Um, of course, because people understand in that context that security of mainland is being purchased on Okinawan freedom. So it's them. Uh, 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 who are paying the bill for、uh, mainland security, and everyone has become、um, aware of that. Ideology is perceived as ideology in Okinawa. Just, you know, these claims that this is good for the people of Okinawa are not even done anymore, but it's been very,、uh, you know, open that it's with power and money that this、uh, decision are、uh, putting through. Ideology no longer works. 
calling for solidarity no longer words because people do feel discriminated and have a very high awareness of that. Assimilation and efforts and Okinawans tried very, very hard did not result in equality. Uh, uh, Okinawa has a range of problems which the mainland doesn't have and it's not going away. It's staying there and it seems it's staying forever and people are very aware of it. Uh, the present order that you have is an order of power and people are very aware of it. On all of these things, describe both language and the problem of Henoko. Um, and so if you talk about language, language and uh, uh, endangerment, you come up to recognize all these difficulties in the relation between mainland Japan and uh, the Ryukyu Islands. And this is why I call the language problem a good problem. Because if people are determined to maintain their languages, well, they have to address, they have to work on this aspect. And this will improve life uh, in Okinawa. So if we look back, uh, Okinawans have two ways, I believe, to go. So either uh, they build a more egalitarian society between majority and minority, and this is obviously not what is happening right now, then the second uh, way that they have is only putting more distance between themselves and uh, mainland Japan. And, uh, well, we'll have to see which of the two uh, we'll uh, realize. In any case, if you don't remember anything of my talk, I would like you to remember that language revitalization is not something to look back in time and about tradition and bringing back an old order. It's trying to improve society and to uh, uh, improve upon shortcomings and problems of contemporary societies. And if you want to read more about that, there'll be a book out later this year. Thank you very much for your attention.